Pushkin. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is that many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tightknit Brewing. They turn to Chase for business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. This May, the United Nations released a report based on thousands of scientific studies saying that a million species are at risk of extinction. It said that humans were altering the natural world at a, quote, unprecedented pace. This is something that Elizabeth Colbert has been reporting on for years. She's a staff writer at The New Yorker and the author of the 2015 Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Sixth Extinction, which is all about biodiversity loss as a result of the human impact on the environment. Elizabeth, thank you very much for being here with us. I want to ask you about biodiversity from a range of perspectives, and I want to start with the question of what biodiversity is. It's a kind of catchy phrase, and we all feel bad when we hear that biodiversity is endangered. But what do we mean when we actually say biodiversity? Well, that, that's a good question. I think that in its most basic sense, you know, biodiversity refers to the variety of life on Earth, and a sort of shorthand is often 
how many species there are on Earth. And the fact of the matter is we don't know how many species there are on Earth. They like to use that estimated number of 8 million, right? Yeah. I mean, there are all sorts of numbers that get thrown around because, you know, we've only sort of named and identified, you know, around a million species. So people have to sort of extrapolate from that Uh based on, you know, the rate at which we're discovering new species, things like that. We do know, don't we, that however many species there are, a whole bunch of them are insects, right? When people use the 8 million number, they tend to say five and a half million are insects. And even if you accept that as a total projection, they're saying that substantially more than half of the species in our biodiversity measure are in fact insects. Yes. The vast majority of species on earth are invertebrates. So, you know, animals without a backbone. And of those, uh, the biggest group are insects. Yes, definitely. So when we talk about the number of species on, on Earth, no matter what it is, as you point out, or even what order of magnitude it is, uh, it's likely that, you know, a great, great proportion of that will be insects. So can I ask a follow-on question that's it's a little Philistine-ish, I fear, but I, I actually think it. So I want to ask you about it. And it's this. When we're talking about these vast numbers, and then we talk about decline, what is the thing that we're supposed to be so panicked about? If we were to go from 8 million species, and I understand it's not a real number, to 7 million species, what is it that's inherently so worrisome about that observation on its own? Well, I think there are a number of different ways to answer that question. And the first one that comes to mind is if you're eliminating, you know, a million species, that's an indicator that something very, very serious is going on. And if you're a living organism, you know, like a human, uh, you might wonder, uh, you know, why, why is that happening and how is it going to impact, you know, my species? Because it's pretty unlikely that you're getting rid of, let's just say, even an eighth of the species on Earth with no impacts. Now, if you want to look at it, you know, kind of what does this mean to me? What do those million species mean to me right now? I think the answer that you could give is, you just don't know, you know, human life, though we live in this sort of a lot of a manufactured habitat, most of us, most of the time, uh, we're still absolutely vitally dependent on the biological world, biological geochemical cycles, which we're screwing around with very, very dramatically right now. And that's why we're seeing these very high extinction rates. And which species we actually depend on, which species are absolutely crucial to human life, uh, we don't know. But you wouldn't want to screw around with it uh, to the point that you find out and realize, oh, that, that was the one that was really crucial. So can I follow on that, that too, though? I hear the argument, and it sounds like it's an argument from uncertainty, right? It says something like, that's a lot of species. Anytime you're losing a high percentage of what's out there in the world, things could go terribly awry and we just don't know how that might be the case. So, you know, why not try to mitigate and avoid the things that, that are causing this decline in species? If that's the argument, if I, tell me first, am I getting it right? Well, I mean, that's, I could offer you another argument um, and that would simply be an ethical argument, I suppose. What gives humans, uh, you know, we obviously have the ability to eliminate a lot of species. What gives us the right, as it were, to do that? I'd like to talk about both of those, if it's if it's okay with you. They both seem super important. The first is a kind of human-centric argument. Right. You know, we should care about these features of our world because we might really be in trouble if we don't. The second is 
an argument from morality or from ethics, not human focused in the same way that says, well, you know, we shouldn't assume that just because we're the humans, we have the right to do all these things that we have the capacity to do. So I think those are both super interesting and important. I'd love to talk about both of them. Yeah. On the uncertainty argument, this seems to me kind of different than the argument with respect to, say, climate change, which is, you know, the other very pressing environmental issue of our of our moment. There, there's overwhelming evidence that rising temperatures are going to have transformative and transformatively bad effects on huge numbers of human beings in the pretty near foreseeable future. And that sounds like, as you know, you're looking for clarion calls to action, that sounds like a pretty powerful one. It's human focused and it says things are getting bad in the following set of ways. With respect to the biodiversity, isn't the uncertainty argument slightly mitigated by the history of big extinctions? I mean, you, you call your book The Sixth Extinction because there are five massive prior extinctions. And those all took place and they were caused by disasters and typically of various kinds. Of course, they led to big changes in the nature of the biodiversity that was out there. But we don't know for sure that we would be the dinosaurs, as it were. Right. I mean, and the question then becomes, if we're balancing at the human level, a whole bunch of competing interests. The main one, as far as I can make out, is the size of our population, because the report suggests that the most significant of the various things that's leading to the decline in biodiversity is just how many people we have and growing food for them and eating animals and fishing for fish and the range of other features that, that come with having so many people. So if we're trading off human values like the population against uncertainty, isn't that sort of different than the climate change context where you know that we're in a lot of trouble and we're in a lot of trouble very, very soon? Well, I, I want to say if you if you accept the idea, you know, that we're causing a, a mass extinction, a spasm of extinction, you know, potentially on the level of these mass extinctions of the past, the most recent one of which, you know, was it's believed was caused by an asteroid impact. That's the event, the end Cretaceous extinction, which did in, you know, not just the dinosaurs, which were a dominant form of, of life on land, but also lots of other major groups of organisms. And also opened the door for us, not, not totally coincidentally, our, our little rabbit-like, uh, rodent-like ancestors. Yes, absolutely. But even if you were a bird or a small mammal, kind of shrew-like mammal, which lived through the end Cretaceous extinction and eventually did give rise to us, I don't think that the end Cretaceous extinction was a, an event you would have wanted uh, to live through. It's not the kind of world you would have wanted to, you know, bequeath to your shrew-like children. I think that the defining, you know, characteristic of a mass extinction is a lot of, a lot of bad uh, shit going down um, and cascading effects that would affect all groups. Um, so yes, some made it through, absolutely. But to take the kind of view 66 million years later, it's easy to sort of sort of blithely say, well, you know, that doesn't look so bad from a distance of 66 million years. But I <laughs> think if you were around at that point- I'm not saying that the KT boundary doesn't look bad. That's, that's not the argument, but go on. Okay. But also to say, well, you know, you, you, take your, you, you, know, you pay your money, you take your chances. Um, we're the dominant organism now. We might come through this extinction event still as the dominant organism. I don't think any biologist on the planet uh, would say that would be a good bet to make. But that's not, I mean, to be 
completely, you know, candid. That's not, that I don't think is the, the strongest version of the argument. I mean, the strongest version of the argument is something like this. We're involved in a world of constant trade-offs. We have a lot of people on the earth. Those people need to eat. And even if all they're eating is fruits and vegetables, they need agricultural in order to do that. If we significantly changed the degree to which we're relying on agriculture and other things to um, raise food, if we could do that in some way, they would still let us affordably feed all these people that we have. That would be one thing. But we don't actually have the full capacity to do that yet. Well, that's a that's a Harley. I mean, we I, you could say you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. I mean, uh, we rely very, very heavily on, you know, the health of our soils, pollination services that are delivered for free by lots of those insects that we were talking about. Uh, it's not clear uh, that you can do without those and, and, and feed, you know, 8 billion going on 9 billion people. T- totally fair point. But it's a trade-off situation. You know, reducing population substantially, which was the view of all thoughtful, educated people a century ago. We don't think that's ethical anymore. You know, we're beyond that kind of eugenics phase. We, we accept the world's population for what it is. And so then we're in a world of trade-offs. And how do, how do we make those trade-offs against uncertainty? The extinction of the Cretaceous tertiary boundary that we were talking about was an asteroidal extinction. It wasn't human-caused. This one is human-caused. And to some extent, it's the result of humans making decisions that are designed to serve the interests of humans. They may be the wrong decisions. We may be getting it totally wrong. But they are decisions, for example, with respect to growing things, that humans have made the judgment are necessary to keep us going. You're trading off, on the one hand, supporting human life against, on the other hand, the uncertainty of the consequences of of the decline. Yeah, and I think that is exactly what we're doing. We're doing it unconsciously. And I also want to say we are quite possibly doing it very unwisely. What looks like a good trade-off in the moment, right, in 2019, what looks like a good trade-off to us right now, uh, is that a good trade-off for our kids? Is that a good trade-off for our kids' kids? I mean, these are questions that, you know, unfortunately, from a, you know, purely scientific, biological, and even, you know, probably ethical view are unanswerable, but I think they have to be factored in. One other point that I want to make, and I think it's pretty important is as we eat higher and higher and as more and more of us, you know, eat higher and higher, as it were, on the food chain, we're using more and more calories to produce our own caloric intake. So I don't think it's at all true that, you know, land use um, decisions are straightforward. They're very, very complicated and they, you know, have to do with not just feeding 8 billion people, but how we're feeding 8 billion people. For sure. I, I don't dispute that for a moment. Um, I, I wanted to turn now to this ethical argument that you raised, which is different from the, where, you know, we're playing dice with our future. Um, it's the argument that, as you put it, humans have the capacity to have a, you know, an unprecedented effect on the environment. That's why, you know, a lot of people think we're already in the Anthropocene age defined geologically as the time that humans are having an impact on, on the earth. But we shouldn't. We don't have, as you put it, the right to do that. I, I don't know if you hold that view, but I'm actually really curious to hear whether you do, and if so, to hear a little bit more about why you think that. Well, I mean, I think from a, obviously humans are one species out of, let's just say million, right? I think, you know, the history of, of human consciousness, as it were, has been a kind of widening circle of our concern. And I think that 
you know, we may look back at this particular moment when we kind of blithely uh, did in a lot of species and a lot of species, I want to say, that are very, very close relatives of ours. I mean, you know, orangutans, gorillas, chimps are all very highly threatened right now. So we are doing in, you know, species of a very high level of consciousness. We can, you know, we can get into the question of also, you know, whether we make a distinction, whether this ethical argument even allows for a distinction between conscious creatures and unconscious creatures. Um, And perhaps it doesn't, but I should point out that we are sort of doing in, you know, our evolutionarily, our very closest relatives. And I don't think we're going to look back on this. I don't think that, you know, humanity, uh, whatever, you know, becomes of us uh, is going to look back at that. Uh, That's going to look like a crime. That's going to look, you know, not necessarily like crimes against humanity, but crimes against humanity's uh, closest relatives. I'm super fascinated by this line of line of thought. I, I always have been. And it's, you know, a lot of environmentalism takes some part in this kind of mode of thinking that we ought not to have this effect on on the world, not just because we're causing pain, not just because we're uh, eventually having, you know, terrible effects, as you said, killing off our, our closest cousins, but more broadly that somehow we shouldn't be so focused on human consciousness. And I guess my my question and, and this is something that I've always struggled with myself, so it's not like I'm, I think there's some magic bullet answer to it, is what about the our observation that although, of course, we do damage far out of proportion to all other species, that no other species seems to exercise this kind of concern for making sure that they take into account the interests of other species or even other individuals of the species. I mean, all species well, pretty much Well, that just seem seems to, like another kind of, you know, human solipsism, to be honest. I mean, Well, it's meant know, to say humans, the exact opposite. Yeah. It's, it's meant to say that what would be solipsistic would be assuming that because humans uniquely have the ability to think of the interests of others, therefore, it must be that the correct ethical way to be is to think of the interests of others. This is the question from meant to be from the other side. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, that's one way to look at it. But I think that once again, the history of, you know, the last, you know, 500 years or whatever from, you know, turning from a geocentric to a heliocentric world should be sort of questioning, trying to decenter humans. And, and we, we are faced with this really interesting situation. And Lord knows, you know, if I had the answer to this, I would be happy to impart it. I don't, but I, I certainly think that all of these things are worth questioning pretty profoundly. Uh, at this particular moment in time. And so we're faced with this really interesting um, two divergent trends as it were here. One, this, as I say, decentering of people, you know, we're descended from, you know, a common ancestor with chimps. The sun does not revolve around the earth. The earth revolves around the sun. So we're one planet among, you know, millions and potentially billions. So we're pretty small specks in the universe as it were. Um, But then we're also one of the lessons of the last, generation or so has been, wow, we are having a really significant impact on this one planet that we as humans call home and on everything that shares it with us and that shares an evolutionary history with us that, you know, we now know goes back almost 4 billion years. Um, so those are pretty heavy numbers in both directions. They, they sort of point in conflicting directions. Um, and the fact that we have not found a satisfactory way of working our way through them uh, is unfortunate because this damage is permanent. You know, when you get rid of the species, you have you have permanently cut off its evolutionary possibilities. So we're really screwing with the evolution of life 
And once again, this goes way beyond, you know, our kids and our kids' kids. It goes to the future of all life on earth, you know, forever. I love the way you put that, that there's a, a deep contradiction between two two different insights, one that we're just another species and the other that, boy, we're not just another species. We're having this disproportionate impact. When it comes to screwing with evolution, to use your phrase, um, are you a believer that that's always a bad thing? I mean, I assume that you're in favor of all kinds of ways that we tweak evolution that make us better off as as humans from, you know, from antibiotics on down. You know, I, I'm not, I don't want to say like, you know, screwing with evolution is some, you know, you're right. As you say, every time, you know, you, um, you know, step on that, you know, ant or whatever you've on some level, obviously everything is always, you know, screwing with, you know, other organisms all the time. But I think we very rarely knowingly and consciously and happily cut off entire limbs of the evolutionary tree. And that sort of brings me back to our closest relatives. I mean, there were a lot of human cousins around at one point. We know more and more about different, you know, sort of human species or subspecies, the Neanderthals, the Denisovans, there are doubtless others out there uh, that no longer exist, quite probably because of us. Um, and we are also looking at getting rid of great apes. If you just look at the future of the evolution of consciousness, right, if we consider those to be the animals of the highest, you know, consciousness, we are potentially creating a world where consciousness, you know, will not arise again or will not arise for a very, very, very long time. And, you know, be take a very, very different form quite likely at that point. But just so I understand, are you saying that if those other higher primates continue to exist in, and in larger numbers, that there would be the possibility of the, of an, a repeat in the evolutionary process in which consciousness, at least of the human type, where it would evolve uh, another time, another time round? No, I'm not necessarily saying that, although that is, that is certainly possible. I'm just saying that if you consider, you know, our great ape, you know, cousins to be conscious, and I certainly think that most, you know, animal behaviorists would, that consciousness itself would continue to exist. There, there would be other species of apes that would eventually arise. Uh, they would not necessarily be humans. They would be other things. They would be, you know, they wouldn't necessarily be, have any more or, or less consciousness, you know, than a gorilla does now, let's just say. But um, that would be a possibility. That would be an evolutionary possibility that was open. If you do away with all the species of great apes, as we are, you know, pretty much on our way to doing right now, uh, then you're just cutting off that evolutionary possibility. And I, I, I'm simply using this example, once again, of, of apes, because I think that it, you know, there are a lot of other evolutionary branches that are being you know, cut off where a whole genus, let's just say, is disappearing, or there's only one species left in the genus and it's disappearing. I mentioned apes because I think people have an emotional reaction to them. And if they thought of a world without great apes and they think of that evolutionary possibility being closed off, um, that would have some, you know, emotional connection that, you know, if I tell you about this, you know, genus of, I was just out in Nevada and I, you know, was... Um, met, saw, I don't know what you, word you'd use, encountered, a, you know, a fish that's the last fish in its genus uh, because mm-hmm. we've been soaking the water out of the Nevada desert. So it, all the other species in this genus are gone. I don't think that has as much, you know, kind of connection to people, but it's, it's another way in which, you know, we are, we are cutting off the, that evolutionary possibility. Can I ask about what we can do? I mean, 
what are the real world doable things that could substantially reduce uh, the harm that we're doing to, to biodiversity that's out there in the world? Well, I think that, you know, the basic answer, probably the, the first order answer would be gets back to that question of, of land use that, that we were discussing. I mean, if we did not um, cut down the rest of the Amazon, cut down the rest of the rainforest um, in the Congo, you know, these big, big, still extant and, you know, relatively intact what are called biodiversity hotspots. Mm-hmm. The tropics is where most of the diversity of the world uh, exists. There's, you know, historical reasons for that. Uh, the tropics have been, have had a fairly stable climate for a long time. They haven't had the, the ice ages and the temperatures fluctuating, all, all things which are bad for species continuation. Right. It, there's just been a long history of life evolving under relatively stable conditions in that. You know, that's one theory and it's a, it's a pretty popular theory. That's why, mm-hmm. that's why there's so much biodiversity in the tropics right now, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to in temperate zones, like, you know, where you and I live, where, you know, there was ice covering this area for, you know, until 12,000 years ago or so. So obviously yeah. everything that's repopulated where I live in Western Mass has, has arrived, re-arrived in the last 12,000 years. So if we, you know, sort of got together as it, as it were and decided, okay, let's, let's leave those parts of the world as intact as possible, um, that would be one way to really probably make a pretty big difference. Not to stop this losses by any stretch of the imagination, because there's all sorts of other factors at work, including climate change, which uh, that report, which you alluded to, you know, talked about becoming a major driver of extinction. It probably is not yet a major driver of extinction, but it's, it's, it's looming very, very large. So another, you know, point that I guess I would make getting back to this question of, you know, climate change is something we can all see as a threat to, you know, life as we know it for humans. A lot of the things that we would try to do for our own good would also probably, although not necessarily, uh, because there are ways to combat climate change that would have very, you know, very significant land use change uh, component that would probably not be good for other species, but might be good for people. So that's another potential trade-off there. But it's also possible that there are ways to, you know, mitigate climate change that would have a big impact on the rest of the species of the planet too. So there are, there is, in some senses, we're not pitting our interests against those other species, but we actually have a confluence of, of, of interests there. Elizabeth, you said something that really grabbed me um, when you said that if we could protect these tropical biodiversity hotspots, and you mentioned the Amazon rainforest and the rainforest in the Congo, that we would go some significant way towards reducing our attack on biodiversity. And I have to say, you know, just by thinking about this issue a little bit and reading your book, I don't think I sufficiently took on board until you just said it, that in a way, this all may be more doable, or much of this may be more doable than we tend to to think when we face major environmental challenges, in the sense that, although there are obviously very strong practical, logistical, and political challenges associated with reconfiguring institutions to protect indigenous people who often are the people who live in uh, these biodiversity hotspot zones, nevertheless, if you could achieve a lot of this by protecting a handful of identifiable areas on Earth, that seems a lot more doable than sort of a global transformation 
in either population numbers or in the way that uh, food is grown or even in, in human diet. I mean, there may be lots of great reasons to do all of those things, and I don't dispute that. But when I, when I think about the biodiversity challenge, when, when you read the UN report, or at least its, its summary, it sounds as though, oh my goodness, you know, this is happening, it's inevitable, there's nothing that we could really do substantially about it that would actually be doable. But this seems a little more doable. This seems within the realm of, of the reasonable. Um, and it also seems like it could be done without imposing tremendous costs on the rest of the world. Is that slightly more optimistic take that I just took away from what you said at all credible? Or do you actually feel the pessimism that I, I previously felt and that I <laughs> think I took away from your book, if you'll forgive me saying so? Well, I, I, I guess I hover somewhere between the two. I mean, Ed Wilson has a, a fairly recent book called Half Earth, where he sort of proposes putting aside, you know, half of the land on Earth for, for other species. And that sounds, you know, like an awful lot. But you know, when you look at these pretty intact places like the boreal forest of Canada, the Amazon, the tropical rainforest uh, in parts of Africa, you could, you could imagine it. I think you can imagine, as you say, doing that. Now that requires us to think totally differently about the world. It's, it requires, you know, transnational agreements. Unfortunately, you know, there's no body and in, in fact, the very awkwardly acronymed IPBS was, you know, sort of designed to be the intergovernmental panel on climate change for biodiversity, to have some group that was looking at this from an international perspective. Now, do they have any clout? You know, that's a very, very good question. Well, is there any talk of an international treaty regime, for example, comparable to or connected to the, the climate change treaty regime, which, you know, it's a topic for another day, of course, the great challenges that even that treaty regime faces. But is there any movement out there for a kind of treaty regime that would say, look, yes, substantial wealth transfer to the countries that house these biodiversity hotspots in exchange for much stricter protection of those zones um, with international monitoring, if necessary, and guarantees not to turn that or allow that land to be turned into farmland? And again, paid for. I mean, this is, would be yeah, very expensive for the right. local people. And the la yeah. I'm the last person to want an arrangement that disadvantages the local people and says then, well, because biodiversity hotspots are where you live, you have to continue to live in poverty. That seems to me personally at least exactly the wrong way to go about it. But you can imagine a relatively, as these things go, straightforward treaty arrangement where the rest of the world pays and gives advantages uh, to the countries that are the hosts of the, the hotspots. And they make certain commitments is, there, is anybody talking about that? I mean, it seems logical in light of what you've said. Well, there, there is a, a companion treaty to the, you know, framework convention on climate change. It's the convention on, on biological diversity. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't get nearly as much press, but it, mm -hmm. it, it does exist. I admit I never heard of it until this moment. So you're right. Yeah. It doesn't. So go on. And what does it say? You know, it is one of these um, very, has very high aspirations for how we're going to, you know, preserve biological diversity, but it has, you know, no teeth. I think it would be a platform that you could work out international, you know, transfers of wealth, as you say. But I, as far as I know, those are not happening. Now, one way in which that is happening is with, you know, these sort of forest credits that people are using as, in connection with, you know, climate change, right, as offsets, climate offsets, if you, if you don't cut down your rainforest, you know, we'll pay you. And that kind of sort of counts as a climate change mitigation effort. 
So that is one arena, you know, where where there is money changing hands, probably not a great deal of money, but a certain amount of money changing hands. I want to sort of just close by asking if you see there being some spots for for hopefulness. If you don't, that's that's totally <laughs> fair. Um, I, I, you know, I'm reacting to the possible moves of, of treaty and regulation, because if you can identify a handful of big, bad actors, it's humanly possible to pressure them. I'm not saying it always works, but it's always at least there's a path forward that you can imagine, you know, following. You can name and shame. You can put pressure. You can try to produce a regulatory regime. And those you know, again, there are no guarantees, but they seems a little hopeful. But are there right. other points that you would think of as, you know, gee, this looks like a way forward. This looks like a possible success or a replicable success. Well, I think in theory there are, but all of the problems that, that we're looking at, environmental problems cannot be solved uh, without some kind of international framework or cannot, not even solved. I'm not even talking about solving them, cannot be mitigated. Uh, without some kind of, you know, very, very serious international cooperation. And um, as you suggest, probably transfer of technology, transfer of wealth. But we are not willing to do that right now. And we are moving in exactly the opposite direction. We have a moment of resurgent nationalism. When when we look back at this, at this moment, which I, I unfortunately believe will be looked at as a moment of, you know, just extraordinary heedlessness and madness and um, consigning, you know, future generations to some pretty bad stuff that we didn't have to consign them to, uh, had we gotten our act together earlier or like right now, I think that the fact that we are seeing this resurgent nationalism at a moment when international cooperation, you know, really couldn't be more pressing, will that be looked at as a coincidence or will that be looked at as, you know, part of this, this human package of, of not being willing to face up to the facts until it's, you know, screamingly uh, too late. Well, we humans are better at collective action than any other species, and we can do a lot more with it, and we can do a lot more bad things with our collective action than Indeed. any other species. And <laughs> so we're, we're sort of, we're, we're, we're our distinctive features as a species are, are definitely at the heart of, uh, of the challenge we face to biodiversity. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me. Elizabeth Colbert offers us an extremely cogent and extremely depressing account of our current moment. The problems we face are clearly international, and if we want to avoid massive extinctions, they demand solutions. It's not like we don't have the technology of international governance available. We know what that technology is. It's called treaties. It's called treaties with teeth that can actually be enforced and that will make governments preserve the environment. Unfortunately, we are also in a moment of profound skepticism via nationalism of exactly the kind of international cooperation that would be necessary if we were actually going to take on the problem of the collapse of biodiversity. What comes next, I guess, is nothing good unless we're able to turn things around and begin to re-examine the tools that actually let governments compel each other to do things to preserve the environment. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Lydia Jean Cott with engineering by Jason Gambrell and Jason Rostkowski. Our showrunner is Sophie McKibben. Our theme music is composed by Luis Guerra. Special thanks to the Pushkin Brass, Malcolm Gladwell, Jacob Weisberg, and Mia Lobel. 
I'm Noah Feldman. You can follow me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. This is Deep Background. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job. And we have to find out, who did they kill? It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling, because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus.